0: With your host Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay one of the long-running stories of the last 18 months is actually something that didn't happen we're going to recap and talk about it with our friend charles brand he's a young voices contributor he's doing the studying thing at gw law really impressive young man excited to talk to him charles how are you my friend great to have you
1: i'm great andrew and thank you for those kind words thank you for having me on
0: appreciate it you did some writing about the hot one of the real hot political topics and then it came for not, And then all of a sudden, it's amazing. The Senate and the House are out of session. Nobody's been talking about this for about two or three weeks. Ain't it funny how that works out? We're talking about the filibuster, of course. Let's start big picture, though, because now that this has died down, now that we listened to this for two years and Joe Manchin's going to end the Republic and da-da-da-da-da, let's just start simple and work back mm-hmm. through this because I think there's a lot of lessons to learn here. Uh, but start with what the filibuster is, not the buzzword the actual device as a legislative tool for the United States Senate.
1: Absolutely. So the Senate filibuster is the 22nd rule of the Senate. Um, and it provides that 60 votes, 60 senators are necessary to invoke what is called cloture, which essentially uh, is a motion to end debate on a bill and to put that bill on a conveyor belt to passage over the years. Um, Unlimited debate has uh, been pretty universal in the Senate going you know all the way back to the founding. Uh, but the modern filibuster really didn't come apart, uh, come about until 1917, when under the pressure of um, Woodrow Wilson, the uh, Republicans in the Senate acquiesced and allowed uh, cloture to be put in the Senate rule book. In the 1970s, uh, the threshold was actually lowered from 67 senators, so two thirds, of that body, the same amount constitutionally required to ratify a treaty to to, to 60 votes, which is now three-fifths of that body, which is seven less, of course. So it's less onerous than it was in the 1970s. So in sum, the Senate filibusters, the 22nd rule of the Senate, um, and it imposes a supermajority requirement on the passage of traditional policy-based legislation. I say traditional policy-based legislation because there is a carve out for the filibuster provided in the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. Um, that procedure is called budget reconciliation. I'm sure uh, many of your listeners have heard those dreaded words, uh-oh, budget reconciliation Done, done, done. Um, you know, what is Joe Manchin okay today, or what is Kristen Cinema okay today? Well, budget reconciliation allows certain measures. Uh, with budgetary impact budgetary impact that is beyond merely incidental mind you to to go through the senate the, the upper chamber of congress with only 51 votes and it limits debates uh, uh i believe at 20 hours in the senate and 10 hours between both houses so there is no unlimited ba- debate for bills uh enacted through budget reconciliation but the senate bird rule another institutional norm of the senate prevents senators from lodging policies into budget reconciliation bills, generally speaking. Those measures have to be strictly speaking budgetary.
0: Yeah, and the bird rule is for Robert C. Bird, longtime uh, senator from the state of West Virginia who absolutely reveled in arcane measures of how the Senate worked. It's another story for another day, but he loved that kind of stuff. That's what he delved into, and that's one of the things he put in place. We all know this, of course, because we just watched the reconciliation process we now have a more uh, colloquial term for it called votorama, that we've done now done twice in the last few weeks using this process. But that's all because they're trying to go around filibusters, they're trying to work around majorities. Let's just cut to the chase here. Now that we've gone through this process and people were screaming that we have to change the filibuster, And we didn't change the filibuster. And we still got this legislative package and other things. Uh, Gun control got passed. If you told anybody in the spring that gun control would get through Congress, this Senate and this Congress, they would have thought you were crazy. Yet it happened after Uvalde. They got uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, Build Back Mansion, whatever you want to call it. They got that through. Here was my problem all along with filibuster. And it wouldn't have mattered. You know, the Democrats are nominally in power, but they have a split Senate, so not really. Was there any version of "get rid of the filibuster" that doesn't start when either side proposes it? With my side isn't getting our way, let's get rid of this.
1: Short answer: No, absolutely not. Um, in fact, I might go so far as to say that a, a an exception to the filibuster or a carve out uh, to the filibuster is 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 a mischaracterization. In truth were one side of the aisle to to ditch the senate filibuster which only requires 51 votes mind you so a simple majority of the senate can 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 modify the senate rule book it's called the nuclear option and for good reason uh the, the senate uh, filibuster you know looking at, at recent history you know look at, at donald trump's presidency i believe at one point he uh threatened uh, pulling the nuclear trigger and nuking the filibuster to to get funding for his border wall—it was—it was something like that. Luckily, Mitch McConnell uh, refused to acquiesce in that uh, uh, demand, and and so Trump didn't get his funds for the border wall, or at least not <laughs> the 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 the, the uh, perhaps constitutionally proper way. Um, if we look at Joe Biden's presidency and all the times that 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 Joe Biden has. Uh, inch toward nuking the filibuster or his his congressional democrats have have advocated for for the nuclear option it's been when republicans have signaled that they're not going to sign on to a a a partisan uh legislative ambition um back last year it was voting rights um uh, democrats had the ambition to enact hr1 which would have nationalized voting laws across the country and provided for certain uh basic um guarantees insofar as like id is concerned it would actually void voter id laws in all uh, in most most states in the union so th- there was that it ended up getting watered down by joe mansion but republicans weren't willing to sign on to that either uh democrats have have discussed doing it to to codify uh the the abortion protections enshrined in Roe versus Wade and and uh Casey our Planned Parenthood v Casey. Um but kristin Cinema and Joe Manchin have been resolute in their uh their um their loyalty to the filibuster and in in not abandoning that role. So just looking at modern history, we can see that it it would appear the nuclear option is only invoked or only threatened when one side's agenda is stymied. But it's more complicated. If we go back to 2013, we can actually see that Harry Reid uh, started this nuking process, so to speak. When Republicans in the Senate were filibustering all of President Obama's um, judicial appointees, Uh, Senator Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader from Nevada decided to ditch the filibuster, the 60 vote threshold for all executive appointees and judicial appointees except Supreme Court justices. That was in 2013. Well lo and behold in 2017 uh, Mitch McConnell um, said, well hey I'll do you one better and I'm going to ditch the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in addition to the rest so we kind of finished off the filibuster for nominees and now uh, we have three appointees from uh uh, appointed by Donald Trump all of whom voted uh to, to overturn Roe v Wade in June in in the Dobbs decision interesting huh that Harry Reid decision in 2013 in my view is somewhat responsible for our current court composition. uh, And I think responsible for some of the decisions they've handed down this term, which has been groundbreaking for the conservative legal movement in more ways than one.
0: Yeah. And does not this come down to when you start talking about something that is a rule, you mentioned it's the 22nd one, so it wasn't the first and it's not going to be the last rule of the Senate. This is self-imposed by the Senate. This isn't something it's within the boundaries of their constitutional authority, but it's not in the Constitution. This is something that they've already done carve outs for. They've talked about doing other carve outs. That's the argument that they were pitching Cinnamon Mansion, going, okay, well, we'll just do a voting carve out, or we'll just do an economic carve out, or we'll just do a you know purple hippopotamus carve out, whatever the case is going to be next week when we come back again. That's the that's the mechanism of filibuster. The overall picture of the filibuster, though, and Joe Manchin basically made this argument in defending it, was look at how the Senate functions. If you look historically trend wise, the Senate and Congress and the presidency, the the triplicate where one party has all three is usually short-lived. The American people kind of like, because of their voting record, whatever they say in polling, they like split government. They, they kind of like the gridlock. So when you've got like a 50-50 Senate, is it unfair to say it's it's kind of hard to argue that you need to get rid of this rule because you have a mandate for such and such when you have a 50 50 Senate to start with and an American voting populace that has a habit of splitting the government uh, pretty regularly after somebody has control of all three branches, at least over the last 20 some years.
1: I think the American people are definitely a fan of supermajority requirements uh, for, for, for voting, at least with respect to the filibuster in that you know, maybe Democrats were disappointed, or or not maybe, they were extremely disappointed by some of the things that that they were not able to enact. The solution is obvious, however. It's uh, elect more Democrats in the Senate. You'll recall that uh, in November 2020, Democrats lost very winnable Senate races um, in Maine, um, in North Carolina, and I'm sure there were others as well. Um, They could have gotten together. In an alternate on an alternate timeline, sufficient votes to to ditch the Senate filibuster, enact HR one or something similar, uh in addition to to build back better in, in its in its original form, which would have been, you know, just massive in terms of the cost. Um so too would Republicans have had victories in in, in you know between 2017 and 2018. Donald Trump could have perhaps passed a nationwide right to work law. Uh, he could have maybe secured additional funding for the Southern border, uh, changed immigration policies, uh, you know, there were still abortion protections enshrined in Roe v. Wade at that time, but, but now, you know, ostensibly Republicans could, could take, uh, take an ax to abortion protections provided for by state law. I think there might be constitutional reservations to such a, to such a piece of legislation, but the point is that it's an insurance mechanism for the opposition party. It basically ensures, okay, uh, right now we're in the mi- right now we're in the minority, we're the opposition. Well, we're able to use the filibuster to stop the legislation the majority would like to enact, legislation that our constituents in our in our blue states are simply not a fan of. So during the Donald Trump presidency, that would include right to work laws, for instance. The unions are no fan. But upon Joe Biden's inauguration, Democrats would have been able to reverse well, repeal and then reverse each and every one of the aforementioned conservative victories I've just listed. They would have been able to do it uh, with just a simple majority in the Senate. It would not be safeguarded by the 60-vote threshold. And so as a result, the policy landscape of the country would be more pendular. It would swing back and forth every two to six years as the Senate changed hands. And every election for the Senate, so every midterm even, would basically be an existential contest for for legislative domination over the entire country. The filibuster by being a minoritarian institution, one which gives disproportionate influence to the opposition party, serves the constitutional function that our framers envisioned. Alexander Hamilton imagined the Senate as the kind of deliberative cooling saucer of national politics. I think where bad ideas would go to die, uh, and good ideas would go to get better, to become sharpened uh, before, before being promulgated nationwide. So I think it's an insurance policy of, of, of sorts for the minority party, the opposition, currently the Republicans. Uh, imagine how unhappy they would be had Mitch McConnell buckled under the pressure from President Trump. Um, they would be, I would imagine, uh, despondent as we speak, um, as Democrats would have been in 2017, 2018. But notice how in each situation, nuking the filibuster, makes one half of the country extremely unhappy and I think feel extremely unstable insofar as their policy expectations are concerned.
0: Yeah. Talking to Charles Brandt, our friend, uh, we're going to continue to talk about the filibuster. We're going to get into the politics of it. We talked about the legal ramifications. We talked about the policies of it. We're going to talk about the politics a little bit more. He's got a piece out an American Thinker about the filibuster. Going to continue to talk to Charles Brandt on her tell right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Heard Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. He just had a shot of chai tea, so he's ready to go. He is Charles Brand. He's our friend from Young Voices, Uh, he's at GW Law. Uh, We talked about the mechanics of this because it is a Senate rule and those kind of get arcane and and nuts and boltsy and wonky real quick. We talked about the policies of it. Let's talk the political side of this for just a minute. Uh, All for the last two years. And it was the Democrats pushing. it. And again, it's not that the Republicans wouldn't do it. That's just how it happened to fall this time. The Democrats were basically arguing that, well, unless you, either change the rules of the Senate and give us more seats in the Senate, or you do the filibuster, we're never going to get anything passed. Well, now we got some data. They got plenty of stuff passed. They actually had a pretty, you know, the supporters of President Biden are having a pretty good run of going, well, look at all the stuff we've accomplished legislatively. That kind of hurts that argument. And then the other thing that hurts that argument is, you're looking now with the benefit of hindsight, they've got a pretty good look at maybe even holding the Senate or maybe even taking it out right now. Isn't part of the discussion here that we don't talk about with the filibuster is politics change way faster than we think it is. So maybe we should be really, really slow about pulling up the old farm jokes. Like if you go out in a field and there's a fence there, it's probably there for a reason. You probably don't wanna take it down. Don't we need a little bit more of that in this debate of like, okay, in the moment we have this heated rhetoric we got to pass this right now or the earth's going to just splatter into a thousand pieces, that kind of just insane rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And then you look at it a couple of months later, it's like, man, the Democratic Party's actually in pretty good shape here, all things considered. Isn't that an argument for some moderation here? I think that's a great point.
1: I mean, look at Joe Biden's legislative achievements. Uh, even if you disagree, I mean, he he has been uh, or, or rather the Democrats in Congress have been relatively prolific these past two years. They passed uh 1.9 trillion in spending, uh, through the, the American rescue plan. Uh, they passed about, uh, I think 900 billion, about a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending something Donald Trump could not get across the finish line. Um, and they just recently okayed, I, I, I think about 700 billion in, in taxes and spending, uh, for, for uh, predominantly the climate lobby. Um, So, so insofar as legislative accomplishments are concerned, I think Democrats have a strong case to make to their voters, their base, that they have delivered, um, to say nothing on the merits of what they've, they've enacted these past couple of years. But I think you're right. Oh, you know, it's how, how often have we heard this? Oh, if we don't nuke the filibuster, we're not going to get anything done. Republican obstructionism will, will define the entire Joe Biden presidency. Well, really, that's not true. Um, as we've seen, a lot of uh, what stood in the way wasn't Republican, wasn't Republicans at all, but actually Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Um, she, uh, I think, took out certain um, equity provisions that she wasn't a fan of as as they were going through budget reconciliation, and and, and Joe Manchin slipped in a couple provisions that might, you know, sweeten the situation for for uh, you know oil. You know getting oil permits or, or, or things like that but but yeah i mean the, the legislative record here suggests that they didn't need the filibuster um they perhaps needed the filibuster to enact the original version of Bill back better and have you know sarah gideon beat susan collins in 2020 um you know we might be having a very different conversation right now but she didn't she didn't and joe manchin and kristin cinema uh both of whom represent uh you know relatively conservative states calculated that it, it simply wasn't worth it, perhaps for political reasons, but also I think for institutional reasons. They both spoken about uh, the negative you know, policy consequences that would befall the nation where the filibuster not there to kind of slow uh, the process a- a- and call for deliberation before we, we, we enact revolutionary change. Uh, about a month ago, and and the news for my piece with American Thinker was that Democrats were were in front of the Supreme Court, again, calling uh, for the elimination of the filibuster. Uh, There it was um, abortion, Uh, specifically nuke the filibuster to codify Roe v. Wade. Um, What's somewhat short-sighted about that uh, proposal is that it's not even uh, constitutionally certain that the federal government could regulate abortion if it wanted to, uh, prior to Row the Hook was the 14th Amendment, which allows the federal government to enforce certain uh, fundamental liberties against the state governments. With that gone, there's really no independent basis for the federal government to regulate abortion or to provide access therefore, unless maybe it's the Commerce Clause. But that aside, what you see is a lot of screaming, a lot of our priorities are the most important and we need to pass them now. There's very little uh, pondering of the long term consequences. And when I say long term, I mean like more than two weeks. Um, it, it, you, you mentioned that, that Republicans, or excuse me, that Democrats could, could hold on to the Senate or perhaps expand their majority and actually take their nominal majority to an actual majority. I think the polling suggests that that's totally possible. Some of these polls coming out of uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and, and Arizona are just uh, seem pretty brutal. You know, Pennsylvania, especially, it's equally likely. I think Republicans could take the chamber, um, and Republicans could take the House. And though Joe Biden would be there to 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 veto legislation enacted by a Republican Congress, um, in twenty twenty four, that might very well not be the case. And this goes back to what I was saying before, where like you know we'd have a very we'd have very pendular policies, which wouldn't be good for the country. It wouldn't be good for taxpayers. It wouldn't be good for any person just planning their activity in the national economy. It's good to know, you know, what the law actually says. With no filibuster, I imagine you'd have this very pendular effect going back and forth between a liberal America and a conservative America. But the politics of it, in short, are very myopic. They're concerned with shoving policies the opposition despises down the opposition's throat. They're not so much concerned with the long-term growth, uh, prosperity, um, and stability of our nation.
0: Yeah, and I think um, Charles Brandt joining us. Part of this is, and we've been beating up on the Democrats a little bit because we've been listening to them howl about it for the last 18 months. Let's not be myopic ourselves. Let's remember, and you touched on it in your piece, it was President Trump that for the better part of almost three years straight was howling at Mitch McConnell and them to get rid of the filibuster, to push through all his stuff. McConnell... Uh, resisted that. This is always going to be a bipartisan thing where whoever's in power and they don't have 60 votes, because I don't know that we'll get to that threshold anytime soon, at least probably the next few election cycles, certainly. If you're not going to have a a large majority in the Senate, that party that has the majority but not enough of a majority is going to howl about this, and they're going to want to reach for that tool. What's the institutional argument besides the partisanship, besides the I just want to do this, and you've touched on it a little bit, but just to find a downforce, what's the institutional argument of, hey, we have this rule specifically because there aren't big majorities right now in our current election cycles. And you're all going to have to work together a little bit here. I know everybody hates that bipartisan word, but that's pretty much what you're getting when you enforce the, the rules put in place. Dare I say it for all the banging I do on the U.S. Senate as being somewhat of a clown show from time to time, like Votorama last weekend when it was. Maybe, maybe the senators that put these rules in might have known what they were doing.
1: So at, at our core, our country is a union of 50 semi-sovereign republics. In his uh, famous dissent from a case decided in the early 1900s called Lochner, uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, expressed that the Constitution was designed for people of many different viewpoints for people of many different backgrounds, for people of many different ideologies.
0: Those ideologies
1: manifest themselves in the policies of the state governments. California is very different from Texas, which is very different from Ohio, which is very different from Vermont. Those voters have spoken, uh, and those uh, voters have decided to take their republic, their uh, semi-sovereign, semi-autonomous, mini-republic in a certain direction perhaps against uh, the grain of the other states. But let us not forget that at our core, we are not a democracy. We are a republic. We're a a democratic republic, a constitutional republic, but a republic. And the Senate was designed to be an anti-democratic element of that republic, one which furthers the interests of the state governments, the states as institutions, often at the expense of popular opinion. When one half of the country, or rather were one half of the country able on the thinnest of margins to scarf policies down the other half of the country's throat, I think it would breed a lot of partisan rancor in our politics more than we even see today you would have big states teaming up on small states like wyoming uh, like vermont like new hampshire like rhode island um, like alaska um, our framers understood that rural states were always going to have different wants and needs From their urban counterparts and now their suburban counterparts. And the Senate, which came about uh, through something called the Connecticut Compromise, a compromise between the big states and the small states as they were working together to draft the United States Constitution, allowed the small states to have equal say to the large states, that of which they sorely lack in the House of Representatives. Mind you, California has over 50 representatives in the House. Um, itty-bitty Alaska has won. Um, So the Senate in general was a means of ensuring equality among the states. The Senate filibuster is an even more onerous anti-majoritarian requirement on top of all. One which requires that there be a consensus among the states, a supermajority of states before the country enact revolutionary legislation i want to talk for a minute about the civil rights act of 1964 this is a monumental piece of legislation one that was instrumental in breaking down jim crow and its grip on the southern states of our country but let's not forget that brown versus board of education actually already required the states to desegregate it with quote all deliberate speed whatever that means um they were slow rolling it for years the southern states were were, were slow rolling it um uh, and and the civil rights act i think really was what pushed the nation over the finish line to ripping jim crow from the roots up by having to surmount a filibuster of southern senators and getting I think over 70 votes in the senate the civil rights act of 1964 was furnished with a super a a a a a legitimizing quality to it and what I mean to say is because the south was able to air its grievances for extended periods of time on the floor of the senate but the majority was relentless and was able to cobble together the votes to get the Civil Rights Act across the finish line and to President Johnson's death. The South, I think, was forced to contend with this legitimizing force of a supermajority. There's this scholar named Keith Whittington who has this kind of supermajority theory of constitutional legitimacy. The idea is that the Constitution is legitimate because it required a supermajority uh, uh, to come into law, a supermajority of our polity to enact it, to enshrine it as the fundamental law of the land. How is the filibuster any different with respect to just traditional policy-based legislation enacted within the confines of the Constitution? I think it furnishes our most pivotal policy policies with a, a sort of legitimization that forces the the, the, oppo- the opponents of those policies to, in a sense, accept their legitimacy as the law of the land. And I think with respect to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, having to get over those relentless, hours-long Southern filibusters, and it wasn't just one person, it wasn't just Strom Thurmond. I mean, massive delegations of Southern senators were ruthlessly attacking the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But the the Republicans uh, in the Senate In addition to the to to the kind of northern um, Midwestern Democrats uh, were 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 quite uh, um, consistent and were able to get together those votes. And I really think it made it a lot harder for the South to resist desegregation much longer.
0: Uh, Since I'm on your Twitter feed, you can tell people all about yours. You can also tell them what you've got going on until we get you back, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you got going on until we get you back on Hertel again
1: first off, thank you so much for having me Andrew it's been a great uh, great opportunity um, your listeners can find me on Twitter I'm um, Charlie Brandt 44 um, and um, you can also look out for my most recent piece in the Federalist if you're um, if you if you have that subscription it's about the Democrats most recent uh, plan to put term limits on Supreme Court justices
0: We'll be looking for that. We will link to all those pieces in our show notes. Like we always say, read the whole thing for yourself, decide for yourself, and go from there. Charles Brandt, we'll have you back. Great job today. Appreciate it, my friend.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew. Have a good
0: one. Thank you, sir.